I think I get a sense of amazement every time I read this, and I really have read this story many, many times. The story is laid out in a very simple fashion, and it truly, if you read it with all its worth, it pulls on the emotional strings of every one of us who has had a child. Verses 1 through 2, we read right in the beginning there how God calls Abraham to offer his son. Now, if you recall the last two weeks, we have referred to Abraham as Abram. That was his first given name. But now, because of God's promise to this man of bearing a child, he calls him Abraham, the father of a great nation. And so Abraham comes to offer his son. And it's interesting how God approaches Abraham in verses 1 through 2. He lets Abraham know, of which Abraham's very aware of this, that it is his only son. God also lets Abraham know that it is a son whom he loves. You see, this was a son of promise that had been given to Abraham. And I'm sure that at this juncture in his life, Abraham has many thoughts that are going through his mind. I'm sure that he was well aware of the sacrifice that many of the heathen around them would do to appease their God. Those heathen to worship their God would sacrifice their children upon the altar in order to do something for the God that they serve. Surely God wouldn't be asking Abraham to do something of this nature. I mean, this was a son that God said that would be promised to him, the son that would be blessed and that God would cause Abraham's seed to multiply in a great way. But despite all the thoughts that are racing through his mind, Abraham shows utmost obedience to God. I want you to notice verse number 3. It's interesting here, the Bible says, just matter of fact, Abraham rose up the next morning. Can you imagine what he thought when he got up? But there's no word in the Scripture of him fighting God, arguing, anguishing, crying, yelling out, and saying, God, it's not fair. We don't read any of that. In the morning, he got up. He put all his gear together, grabbed Isaac, and he set out on the long journey. Verse number 4 tells us that there were three days that passed. Oh, imagine now, three days, if you will, of anguish of soul. Some of the last hours that he's going to see his beloved son will be in these couple of days. I'm sure that he slept with him right by his side. I have no doubt that he didn't sleep well those nights and he'd open up his eyes trying to get some shut eye, but he'd open up his eyes enough just to stare at that child and say to him, whisper, Isaac, I love you. Those couple of nights were probably some of the most sleepless nights for Abraham because of all that was going on in his mind. He nears, in verse number 5, the end of his trip, where he leaves his servants 
And the Bible says that he goes on to worship God. Let me ask you a question here. Worship? Worship God? What kind of God demands a worship like this? But despite all the feelings that are welled up inside of Abraham's bosom concerning what lies ahead, he tells his servants that he and Isaac will both return. In fact, the writer of Hebrews, I'll quote this verse later, tells us that Abraham believed God to such a point that he believed that God would raise up that child if he actually slew him. Pretty amazing. But now verses 6 through 7, Abraham takes all the items that he's packed, leaves his servants behind, and he begins to make that journey up the mountain where the Lord had called him to. And finally, Isaac's on to something. Hey, Dad, you have the wood. You've got that which is going to go ahead and create the fire. You've got this and that. And he names the things. He said, but Dad, where's the lamb? Where's the sacrifice? Oh, Daddy Abraham probably hoped that this time wouldn't come, that Isaac would figure things out. Now he's going to have to verbally commit what he doesn't want to say to Isaac. And I don't know how he got the strength to muster up to even move his mouth to say the words, but Abraham in verse number 8 speaks a phenomenal truth. Look at these words. My son, God will provide himself a lamb. God will will provide himself a lamb. Now here it is, Abraham and Isaac reach that awful destination of which God had asked Abraham to go, verses 9 through 10. Abraham then faces a terrible task of now having to bind his son as an offering. Now it's been estimated that maybe Isaac was possibly 16, 17 years old, maybe even up into his early 20s. The same word that is used of him, Isaac, lad, also refers to the young men. It's the same Hebrew word in verses 3 to 4. Suffice it to say, Isaac is old enough to be able to run away from his dad. He's old enough to resist him. But again, just like Abraham got up that morning and did what God asked him to do, Isaac did not resist but submitted to the will of Abraham, his father, and ultimately to God. Isaac willingly agrees to this, and now as Isaac is bound and is placed on that altar, imagine now Abraham taking that knife to go slay his son. He probably lifts that knife up and looks at it for the longest time. Maybe he starts thinking to himself, where can I puncture Isaac that will instantly kill him and not just wound him? Or maybe he thought, can I kill him with just one blow? Because I don't want my boy to suffer at all. And I'll be honest with you, if this story went on, telling of, us, of Abraham killing his boy, I doubt we'd have many people in churches today wanting to serve a God like this. 
Long ago, translators might have tried to smooth over this passage of Scripture or try to remove it because to them it's an ugly part. Preachers, no doubt, would have glossed over this passage of Scripture because nobody can fathom a God who would ask any of us to kill His only Son. But I'm here to remind you of something. The story has a rich, beautiful, and rewarding ending that gives us insight into the type of relationship that God is looking to have with us. Imagine now, as Abraham grabs that knife and lifts it up over his son, I can imagine now, as his hands clutching onto this knife, his arms and his hands are trembling and shaking. And while he has his hands lifted up, he hears those words from above, from God. He's heard the words already. He's heard God's voice, and it's these two words, Abraham, Abraham. And he drops the knife, and he looks up to God and asks what God wants. And notice here in verse number 12 what God asks him or tells him, Lay not thine hand upon the lad. Oh, those are gladly received words. Neither do anything unto him. For now I know that thou fearest God, seeing thou hast not withheld thy son. And Abraham, in case you think I forgot it, it's your only son. Abraham after hearing these words of God, all of a sudden hears some rustling behind him. He looks, what does he see? It's a ram that's caught in some of the brush behind him. This is not a, a lamb, some little lamb. It actually was a ram, which is a symbol of truth. And it was not any ordinary ram, but it was probably a ram that was lost by its owner. And how amazing that God allowed, think with me for just a moment, God allowed that ram to be lost by its owner at the very moment when Abraham brings Isaac to do what God asked him to do. Only God can do something like that. But now the clincher. In this great and magnificent story, it is found in verse number 14. Abraham, the Bible tells us, named the place Jehovah-Jireh, which you can read in the verse, it means, in the mount of the Lord it shall be seen. Now, even though Abraham named this place Jehovah-Jireh, this has been a name that we've not just attributed necessarily to the place, but we've attributed this name to God because it has to do with God. You see, this is the God who sees or the God who sees to it. We might put it this way when we say Jehovah Jireh. We might say the God who will provide or the God who sees the need beforehand and attends to it by providing for it. No doubt God knew Abraham's need a great while before Abraham ever knew it. And he already had a shepherd 
who was going to lose that lamb, and it would be right near the place where Abraham would go to slay his son. Question for you this morning. Do you know the God, Jehovah Jireh? Do you know Him as the God who provides? Just as Abraham's relationship of God was strengthened and developed through this moment, can I say to you that God is desiring to strengthen your relationship with Him? It may be that you need to know the God, Jehovah Jireh. It may be that there's some other facet of God that He wants you to know about Him. But regardless of what it is, God is trying to deepen that relationship. And in this introductory moment, let me go ahead and now get into the body of the message. And I'd like to ask you three pertinent questions about your relationship with God based on this story of Abraham and Isaac and God Himself. Question number one, simple question, do you know God? Do you know God? Now, there's probably many in this room today who have some knowledge of God. Oh, hey, preacher, preacher, God wrote the Bible. Wonderful. Preacher, I know something God did. God performed miracles. Hey, preacher, isn't God the one who delivered the Ten Commandments to Moses? Ah, I got something else. God is a trinity. He's manifested Himself in the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. Some of you might jump in a little further and say, well, God has planned from the earliest human history to send a Redeemer for mankind, and that Redeemer is none other than the Son of God, Jesus Christ. Now, if you say to yourself, and your chest is a little bowed, and you say, well, preacher, I could an answer every one of those questions. I know God. Congratulations this morning. Congratulations on maybe passing an entrance exam to an introductory theology class. But those things and the knowledge of them say nothing, nothing about your relationship with that God. You see, the beauty of the Christian life is that what you and I have today is a relationship. Go search from church to church around this world. Go read about various religious circles and organizations and what you'll find is this term, a religion. Everything about religious circles is what we do to attain unto God. We work we perform, we live out a certain way just in order to reach unto God and to make things acceptable to God. But the beauty of biblical Christianity is that God's not given a religion because there's absolutely nothing you can do to attain under the graces of God. That's why God sent His Son Jesus to come to this earth. What you could not do what you could not reach unto, God came to you and to your need. And He's provided a relationship. And so today, if you're here as a born-again Christian, there's a wonder in that. It's not a religion. 
It's not something I say, well, okay, I'm doing this, I'm performing this. No, no, I want to tell you something today. You have an ongoing, vibrant relationship with Jesus Christ. God has taken residence in your heart. But while there are many here today, and I hope every one of you can test to the fact that you know Jesus as your Savior, and you've entered into that relationship, it does not mean that that relationship is fruitful and growing. It's a sad reality. Many believers in good churches like this one only have a casual relationship with God. In other words, their relationship is all surface. Oh, these people attend church, but they don't get engaged in service. They're not involved in the little extra things and trying to minister for the Lord. Oh, these people read their Bible some, but it's more of an academic exercise than anything else. And I would dare say today that these casual Christians are like certain people that I know on Facebook. How many have a Facebook account? Would you raise your hand for just a moment? God bless you. I've known some people on Facebook who have thousands and thousands of friends. And they're the type of people that they're requesting friends of their friends' friends. And they know all about these friends' friends' activities. Oh, this certain person went to this movie, or this certain person went to this vacation, this area, and this person did that, and these people got together. But then I'll ask the person, do you really know them? No, but they know about them. That's the beauty of Facebook. And sadly, many people treat their relationship with God like they're on Facebook. They're scrolling through the Bible, hit and miss on some of the things, but they really do not know God. And if this describes you here today, it's possible that right now you're coming up with all sorts of excuses why your relationship with God is not where it ought to be. You might say to me, well, preacher, you don't understand how busy I am. You don't understand the family obligations or the hobbies that I have or the career that I'm chasing after. There just hasn't been really much effort on your part, sadly. There's a book I read a number of years ago. I would highly encourage you to get a hold of it. It was written by a man by the name of A.W. Tozer. Some of you may recognize that man's name. He wrote a book called The Knowledge of the Holy. And in that book, he makes a very fascinating statement, and I'm going to give you this statement. It is this, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. Let me give that again. What comes into our mind when we think about God is the most important thing about us. You see, if it's you that God is some mere grandfatherly figure up in heaven that is very passive and he's uninterested in our lives, or if God is just some distant concept that we talk about, then I must say that your life as a believer is shallow at best. 
But if on the other hand, you know God intimately and you know specific things about Him because you spend time with Him, then it probably tells me that you have a very active, vibrant, ongoing relationship with your Heavenly Father. So it's very important, number one, as we saw with Abraham, to know God. And the question is this, do you know God? But now let me give question number two. Let's probe a little deeper. Do you understand, number two, how much God loves you? Do you understand how much God loves you and knows you? You know, it's an incredible truth to realize that the very God of the universe, the one that created everything that you see, desires to know you. Many scriptures bear this truth out of how much God knows about us. Listen to this, how the Bible tells us that we're graven on the palms of God's hands. The Bible says in Isaiah 59 verse 16, Behold, God says, I have graven thee upon the palm of my hands. The verse before it, Isaiah 49 verse 15, reminds us that God does not forget us. Listen to this. Can a woman forget her sucking child that she should not have compassion on the son of her womb? Yea, they may forget. There are some mothers in time over history in our world who have neglected and forgotten about their babies, sadly as it is. But God will not forget you. It's a beauty. Take your Bibles, if you would, hold it in Genesis 22, but I want you to go to Psalm, the book of Psalms, for just a moment. Psalm chapter 139, I want you to see how much God really does know you. This is a very, very powerful psalm. It's a psalm of David. Notice what the Bible says right off the bat in verse number 1, O Lord... Thou hast searched me and known me. Thou knowest my down-sitting and my uprising, basically every little facet of my life. When I get up, when I'm just lounging around at the house, you know everything about me. Verse 3, Thou compassest my path and my lying down. Thou art acquainted with all my ways. In other words, you've got my ways all hedged in, hemmed in. You know everything about me, where I'm going, when I'm coming in, all of that. Verse 4, There's not even a word in my tongue, but, O Lord, Thou knowest it all together. Thou hast beset me behind and before, lay Thine hand upon me. And then I love verse 6, Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. God, it's amazing how much you know about me. You're a God that knows everything, but you know me. You're a God, and this psalm tells us, you're a God that's everywhere, but you're with me. You're a God that's created everything, but you've created me. And if you read through this psalm, what an incredible psalm. No matter whether we fly up off into heaven or we go down into the afterlife and we go into death, there's not a place that God is not there with us. There's not a thing that God doesn't know about you. God knows you. And I must submit to you today that this God who knows me and you intimately and completely 
wants to continue and better that relationship, and he'll do it by a test, by proving. Now, please understand that when God tries, comes to enter your life, God's a gentleman. He'll not impose upon you, neither will he go where he is not wanted. And here it is in Genesis chapter 22. In order to further this relationship and let Abraham know how much God knows of him, God proves him. The Bible says in verse number 1 of chapter 22, it uses in the King James Bible the word tempt. Now please understand, God doesn't tempt us like Satan does. Satan tempts us in order to do evil. But James chapter 1 verse 13 says, Let no man say when he is tempted, I am tempted of God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, neither tempteth he any man. So that word tempt here, we could use the word test, the word prove. And what was God going to do? God was going to prove Abraham's love for him. Because God, knowing Abraham like he did, through and through, God was going to prove Abraham to see if Abraham was really going to follow God as he said he would. God knew which Abraham, way Abraham would go, but he wanted Abraham to know for sure. And he wanted it to be displayed before others of which way Abraham would go. And I must submit, say to you today that God will prove you in some area at some time with something very close to your heart to draw you closer to Him. You say, well, preacher, that's not fair. But I'm here to tell you, God doesn't dwell on mere talk. We sit there and we talk all the time about how much we love God and how much we want to serve Him. And so God says, all right, I'm going to come in and test you. Prove you. I know where you are, but I want to make sure you know where you are. And I want other people around you to see exactly where you are. And so now let's get into our third point here. And question number three Do you realize that God desires to deepen your relationship with Him? First question Do you know God? Second question, do you understand how much God knows about you? But now third question, vital. Do you realize that God desires to deepen your relationship with Him? You know, we could summarize this whole story that we read in Genesis 22 in this way. The test of Abraham's relationship with God was whether the relationship with Isaac was more important than the relationship with God. Think about it. It was possible that this dear son, this only son, this son whom Abraham loved, it could be that this son stood between Abraham and God. The reality of the matter is that every one of us, from time to time, have an Isaac in our lives. It may not be a physical child, but it may be some possession. 
something in our life that, oh, we hold so dear, and we're not letting go of it. God's going to prove us to see whether we really love God or not. So in order to clear the matter up and prove to you whether God is really important in your life, He's going to ask, notice, for your Isaac. God is going to ask for your Isaac. That's the next point on here. So what is your Isaac? It could be a relationship, a career, a passion in your life, or another relationship. These things may not be wrong in and of themselves, but it takes precedence over your relationship with God. And it is such a priority in your life that it is putting pressure on your relationship with God And God is simply going to ask you to put it aside. So the question is, what is your Isaac? What is it that you're holding out against God? He's going to ask for your Isaac. Now please note something here, that Abraham was willing to sacrifice his son. I read in the book of Hebrews in the New Testament, it's pretty amazing, God gives a very rich characterization of Abraham. He calls Abraham the friend of God. Let me ask you a question. If God had something to say about you, what would you like to have said about you? I don't know about you, but that's a pretty high compliment. To be called the friend of God? Wow. But I believe that Abraham was able to be called the friend of God because of this very scenario when God asked him to bring Isaac to the mountain to offer him before God. And there's three things that happen here of the decision that Abraham made in giving up his Isaac. Number one, he worshiped God. Remember that word what we saw when Abraham said, all right, servants, I want you to stay here. Isaac and I are going to go. We're going to come back, but we're going to worship God. Now, let me ask you in the culture that we live in, our Christianity that we are a part of today, when we use the worship, the word worship, what is our connotation with that? We think of people in church praising God, clapping their hands, singing songs, whatever it may be, but we have a certain thing that we've conjured up in our minds about what worship is. You realize you don't find that in the Bible? You know what worship really is? Worship is a man who comes before God and actually bows down before God. That's worship. Worship is bowing down for the sake of submitting to or saying, I am giving my life to you, I'm serving you. And I have to say today that in our modern Christianity culture, we attribute worship to all this hoopla and happiness and and on and on it goes. But do you realize worship does not just simply take place on Sunday? Worship is on Monday and Tuesday and Wednesday when I alone, when nobody else is around me, lift up my hands before God and say, God, I am bowing down before you. I give my life to you. You know what Abraham was doing here? 
when he told the servants we're going to worship God, he told them, my life is God's and I'm giving it to him. Some of you today need to worship God in that way. Bow down in your heart and in your knees before him and say, God, I'm all yours. But notice number two in making this decision he not only worshiped God, but he trusted God. You know, some of you are here today and you say, oh, God's a great God. God's powerful. God can do anything in my life. But then God tests you and you go, oh, I don't know if God can help me there. I don't know if God can really do what he says he can do. My friend, I want to tell you, talk is very cheap. We say we trust God. We say we have faith in God. But when the rubber meets the road, we say to ourselves, mm, I, I trust myself a lot more. I'll take care of it myself. You know, it's amazing how the Hebrews commentator put it this way. Chapter 11, verses 17 through 19. Listen to this. By faith, Abraham, when he was tried, here's a story, offered up Isaac. And he that received the promises offered up his only begotten son, of whom it was said that in Isaac shall thy seed be called accounting. Now here's what Abraham did. Abraham's given a promise by God, and Abraham trusted God, and he believed this. He, he basically made this accounting aspect. He understood that God was able to raise up Isaac from the dead. Here's what he believed about God, that if he took that knife and he came down and he slayed Isaac, he had such faith in God that God would go, whoop, and Isaac would have gotten up off that altar and would have lived. That's the faith. And God is asking you to do something and some of you are holding back. The reason you don't know God is because you're not willing to take those steps of faith like Abraham did. But number three aspect in this decision is he completely surrendered everything to God. God wants you to surrender that which is important to you. It may be your dream, your children, your life in relationship to your career, your family. I don't know what it is, but God says, that's an Isaac. I've given it to you, yes but I want it. And you know what God does many times? He'll take that which is good, but what we're holding on to, and when we give it to Him, He gives it back to us. Oh, God gave Isaac back to Abraham. He said, I just want to make sure that I'm number one in your life, not Isaac. This morning in conclusion, I want to say to you today, some of you are going to walk out of here and you're going to be living the same type of life that you lived coming in. It's what I often like to call a comfort zone Christianity. You have a relationship with God, but it's shallow. The relationship with God has cost you very little. You know why? You've put very little into it. I mean, it was hard for you coming to church this morning. It's going to be hard for some of you to come to church in the evening. 
It's going to be hard for some of you to come to church on Wednesday night because you put very little effort into that relationship to get to know God. For those of you who live in this comfort zone Christianity, you'll never know Him as a Jehovah Jireh because you'll refuse to give up your Isaac. Unless you get out of this comfort zone Christianity, you'll never know the God of Romans 8.32. What does that say? He that spared not his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? Some of you don't know, you don't, you don't realize that God gives all things to those who really seek after him. Some of you who live in the comfort zone Christianity will never know the God of Philippians 4.19, which says, but my God shall supply all your need according to his riches and glory by Christ Jesus. But you've never figured that out because you've not trusted Him. You've not given over to Him what He's asked from you. Your Christianity, listen, listen, it's on your terms. You want to live the ordinary life. You want to live what is routine for you. You want to live within the limits that you have placed. But until you start stepping out of the ordinary Christianity, you won't know God like Abraham got to know Him. And you won't see God provide like He did for Abraham. Oh, Abraham said, and I'm quite sure, but God, I love my son. He's my only son. You can't take him away. God's coming to your Isaac. God's coming to some of the things you're possessive of, like your time. Well, I'm not going to get involved in that church. I just don't have time. Well, if you give up with your treasure, God will see it to it that you have the time to do the things you need to get to. You say, oh, preacher, I'm holding on to my money. You, don't, you just don't understand. I mean, look at the economy that we're living in. I can't give of my tithes and offerings to the local church right now. You don't understand what I'm going through. But I'm going to just tell you, you're holding on to that money tightly. But if you give unto the Lord, you do what He's asked of you, you'll see Him blessed in so many different ways. Book of Malachi tells us, that if you give of your tithes and offerings, He'll open up the storehouse of heaven and bless you in a way that you could not even imagine. But you'll never know that blessing while you do this. While you hold on to that wallet and say, mm, I got that rubber band around that wallet so tight, not even God can open it. You say, preacher, you're preaching this because you want more money in the church. No, no. I trust God for whatever He does. As I look across this auditorium, I don't know who gives what. I don't even know if our deacons give. I hope they do. But honestly, I have no idea outside of what my wife and I do here. I do not know what people give. And every week, I trust God for meeting our needs. And guess what God has done in the almost eight years I've been here? God has met our needs. You say, well, preacher, why do you talk about money? Why do you talk about tithing? Because I want to see you get the blessing that others I've known have gotten the blessing. I want you to get the blessing that I have gotten as I've given to the Lord. 
You say, oh, preacher, I love my life. I'm not ready to give it up to God yet. I'm not ready to surrender what God wants me to do. Look, I've got no talent. I've got no ability. There's no way God can use me. So I'm holding on to my life. Well, I want to just tell you, if you lay your life on the altar, if you come at the invitation time and you say, oh, God, I give myself to you, I want to tell you, God can use you in a way that you wouldn't even imagine. Now, while this story has such great application to believers today, it's possible, it's possible that you're listening to this and you're not a born-again believer in Jesus Christ. Or you go to church from time to time, you say a few religious things, you know some scriptures, but really you don't know what it means to have salvation provided for you by the Lord Jesus Christ. It's amazing here that on this mountain, it is referred to as Mount Moriah, a mountain that God has provided. He's provided for Abraham to come and offer his son, and God allowed Abraham to, he stopped him before he put that knife down and provided a ram for him. And people say to themselves, oh, God doesn't know what it is to sacrifice your only son. Oh, yes, he does. Because do you realize that almost 2,000 years later, right near the place where Abraham held that knife up, God's only son, the son whom he loved, was raised up on a cross to die for your sins. Look at verse number 8 for just a moment. There's something powerful. And you wonder why I use the King James Version of the Bible. Because all the modern translations have done a disservice to this verse. Look at verse 8. Abraham said, My son, God will provide... Next word. What is it? Now, the modern translations are God will provide for Himself or God, will, uh, God Himself will provide. But the text actually is, and if we could stop it there, God will provide Himself. Do you know that's exactly what He did 2,000 years later after Abraham? God Himself, in the form of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, died on the cross for your sins. He loved you. He gave Himself for you. And all that remains is for you to place your faith in Him. What a rich story. Christian, can I encourage you? Get out of the comfort zone Christianity. Get out of it. Begin giving to God what He's looking for in your life. To those that are here today and are not born again, they're not a child of God, can I say that God loves you so much? He gave Himself for you. Would you place your faith in Him? Let's bow our heads, please, and close our eyes.
Father, thank you for this time together. Thank you for the Word of God, how rich and powerful it is. Oh my, what an amazing, amazing story that you included for us in Scripture. And I pray today that you would speak to hearts, that you would touch us, that there would be people who would respond to the gospel. Right now, while heads are bowed and eyes are closed, no one's looking around. You say, preacher, I'm not sure I really know Jesus. I've been trusting in myself to get to heaven. I I thought it depended on me. I thought it was because of the family that I grew up in. I thought it was, and you fill in the blanks, whatever it may be. But I'm here to tell you and remind you of something according to the Bible, that God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in Him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Are you here today and say, preacher, I'm not saved. If I were to die today, I don't, I don't know that I'd go to heaven, but I'd like to go and I'd like to know Jesus as my Savior. Just by uplifted hand right now, please, nobody looking around, just myself. You say, preacher, right now, I'd like to be saved. And you just slip your hand up just quietly right now. Anyone here today, preacher, I'm not saved, but I'd like to be saved. I'd like to know Jesus as my Savior just right now. Anyone here today? I trust that every person here under the sound of my voice knows Jesus as their Savior. Let me talk to Christians. What is it that you're holding on to? What is your Isaac? You're not willing to lay it on the altar. 